Hey, running nerds, it's Kyle Merber, and we're going to try something new here. If you're listening to this podcast and there's a high likelihood that you love track and field. In that case, I encourage you to subscribe to the Lap Count newsletter. It's my newsletter, helping fans stay up to date with all the thrilling action and biggest stories in the world of track and field, delivered right to your inbox every Wednesday morning. It's free. It takes less than a minute to sign up at thelapcount.com, and I think you'll enjoy it. Here's this week's newsletter read by Chris Chavez. Before we get into it, this week's newsletter is sponsored by New Balance. Every running shoe review uses the same few descriptive phrases that tend to contradict each other to remain as inoffensive as possible. No one is willing to commit. They're soft yet responsive, or you wear them for your hard days or when you want to recover. But my favorite is when they say that they are lighter and faster than ever, as if any runner can actually distinguish the difference between a single ounce or millimeter. In an effort to do none of that, let me tell you something about the New Balance Fresh Foam 1080s. I like them. I use them for running 7-minute pace for my house and for walking to my car to drive somewhere else so I could go run 7-minute pace. They're workhorses and about as reliable of a shoe as you can ask for. When somebody new into running asks me what shoe should I get, then the New Balance 1080s are my go-to recommendation because everyone likes them and that theoretical person probably will too. Lap 137, marathons are getting shorter. The new age of marathoning, short loop. Rockland State Park, where courses ain't short, but the loops are. If you work for the New York State Parks Department and can get the slogan posted there, please let me know. This past weekend, the McCurdy Micromarathon took place at Rockland State Park, about an hour outside of Manhattan, and it proved something that anyone who has ever run in a major marathon already knew. They're not set up to run your fastest. There are bridges in New York. There's hills in Boston, downhills in London, turns in Chicago and in Berlin, U-turns in Tokyo. To get to the start of any of them requires a crack of dawn, wake-up time, a long bus ride, and a lot of standing around. The elites get bottles, but not everyone has a bottle clause, and if you're trying to get any feedback from your coach, good luck hearing it. These races are designed for tens of thousands of people, and if they do not have the flexibility to, say, change the start time depending on the weather, which is exactly what happened this weekend in New York. This past spring, on the same course, Trials of Miles organized a similar half-marathon event, and the athletes were told the race would be on either Saturday or Sunday for optimum conditions, and it was not official until two days before. Consider the impact that pacing lights have had on the track these past few years. There's a huge advantage to knowing exactly where you're supposed to be for a measured and even split effort. On the roads, there are GPS watches, which is accurate to do a good enough job generally, except when there are hills. What is the equivalent of a 5-10 mile split when there was a 50-foot net elevation loss? On a pancake flat 3-mile closed loop course, this is no longer an issue. Every lap, there was a board displayed for runners to see how their splits compared to where they needed to be in order to get the Olympic trials qualifier. With good weather, pacers, and a big pack to run with, bottle support, stress-free logistics, and no inclines, things worked out really well. Sagay Tuma of Eritrea won the men's race handily in 2.11.04, something he has done before as his personal best is 2.09.07. However, this was his fastest marathon since 2019, but it's what happened behind him that was remarkable. 32 American men ran under the OTQ standard of 2.18 flat, and 27 of them hit it for the first time. Callie Thackeray won the women's race in her marathon debut, running 2.22.17 to jump immediately into a tie at the number two spot on the Great British All-Time list. The four-time All-American at New Mexico had just finished seventh at the World Championships half marathon. Following her through the tape was a cohort of 12 American women who broke the 237 mark, 10 of whom had previously never OTQ'd. 
between the McCurdy Micro, the Marathon Project, the Ineos 159 Challenge, and other elite-oriented races, there is a proof of concept. These bubble events create fast times. As standards get more difficult, these time trials will become increasingly more common, and the cycle will become self-perpetuating. The top athletes in the world will continue going to world marathon majors because of the big appearance fees and prize money until they start getting passed over Olympic team selections because some dude ran 201 in a vacuum rather than 203 in Berlin. Can you imagine how fast Kelvin Kiptum or Tigas Acefa would have run had they not had to go over even the smallest speed bump, make a harsh turn, or worry about taking tangents? When theorizing with a friend about this dystopian future, he said, I cannot wait until we can focus on just racing again. I hear that. It sort of feels like I'm getting close to that place on the track. Being the 12th place finisher in a time that I used to consider fast just doesn't impress me anymore. My qualms with marathon running are more about the dispersal of talent rather than the disjunction of courses. And maybe if chasing fast times puts the fittest athletes in the world on the same course on the same day in head-to-head matchups, then that's worth giving up running past national monuments through screaming crowds to do so. But... City marathons are special because it's the one sport in which 40,000 people get to compete with the elites, right? And those participants are the ones funding the whole thing. Maybe the problem is having time-based qualifying standards that force athletes to stop competing with each other and only with the clock. Is there another option? The College Cross-Country Roundup, Wisco and Pre-Nats. Big meets coming up. You've got your conference championships, the regional meet, the NCAA meet. What does Graham Blanks do now to prepare himself for these last three meets? Listen to my coach. I don't really know much about training, but I, I can listen to my coach. So, The insatiable craving every diehard Harrier fan feels that drives them to scream, me want Nutty Comb, has finally been met. That's right. The NCAA cross-country season had its mid-season opening day in Madison on Friday. It wasn't the official preview of the national meet, of course, because that was the next day in Charlottesville. But with both meets behind us, the hype is building and the storylines are being written. It's not exactly a new plot line that the dynastic Northern Arizona men would come in as the top-ranked team in the country and then proceed to run away with it. They've won six of the last seven NCAA championships. But from an individual standpoint, pre-race odds would have listed the top two returners from last year's meet, Nico Young and Drew Bosley, or the 5,000 and 10,000-meter champion from Stanford, Kai Robinson, as the favorites. Instead, it was Harvard's Grand Blanks who finally made the hard move to break open the much-too-large pack to earn the biggest win of his career. Meanwhile, had you predicted a few years ago that it was Northern Arizona women who would be taking down the top-ranked NC State Wolfpack to win at Nuttycomb, not just in 2023 but ever, then we would have put you on the next bus to Crazy Town. But the Lumberjack women's rise continues thanks to this incredibly useful thing in cross-country called depth. Now, before rally readers write to me about how the last dance is not over because they were missing a key piece or two, I agree. And I also agree that what happens five weeks before the national meet is not always what's going to happen at the national meet. That said, the intrigue of another Caitlin Tui versus Parker Valby showdown has clearly been elevated significantly. The rivalry on display on the course, but maybe more so between their fan bases is honestly cult-like. The degree of support for these two athletes is basically at a fever pitch that has historically only been reserved for the likes of Franz Liszt and Taylor Swift. Here's your obligatory reminder that times in cross country are all relative and that they don't matter. But Valby ran 1917 to win by 12 seconds and to set a very difficult course record on a rainy day. She's fit, and five weeks to go is a long time. Over at Prenats, the Prenats didn't have the same star power as its Wisconsin counterpart, but it did introduce us to some new names to watch. Ben Shears, 
1407, 5,000 meter personal best. Didn't put him on my radar coming into this one, but cross country isn't track, and I won't make that same mistake again. He led Arkansas to a dominant victory. The Razorback man posted just 35 points and moved from number 21 to number 8 in the national polls as a result. The BYU Cougars have proved why they're pretty much always projected for the podium these days, as they scored 32 points with Carmen Alder running away with it early. She was 203rd in her one NCAA cross-country appearance, and now look at her. Who would have thought? Probably Coach Diljeet Taylor. The Grand Marathon Championships. There were only 55 men and 18 women who finished the Japanese Olympic marathon trials. Part of those diminutive figures is due to the difficulty of actually qualifying. And then there were four athletes who were disqualified for not meeting the cutoff times on race day. That's right. If you're too slow, then you're done. And presumably a man in a pork pie hat uses a giant wooden cane to scoop you off the course like it's an old-time vaudeville performance. The last male finisher crossed the finish line in 225.34, and the slowest female finisher was 234.35. Japan would have never allowed for the likes of Chris Barnacle to finish dead last in 345 after possibly consuming some edibles. I digress. Back to the battle for the Olympic team. After stealing the show at the 2018 Boston Marathon, Yuki Kawuchi almost pulled it off again in a downpour in Tokyo. With a blistering 1445 opening 5K, no one dared to run with the citizen runner, which honestly seemed a bit disrespectful. Yuki ran 207.35 this year, and no one wanted to cover that move. Well, at 35K, the Chase Pack's patience paid off, and they caught up to him. Kauchi would latch on and hold on to a fourth-place finish. Ultimately, Naoki Koyoma, who ran 208.57, and Akira Akazaki, who ran 209.06, broke away and secured the top two places for the Summer Games in Paris. On the women's side, there was a huge swarm of 221 to 222 athletes going into the race, making it really wide open especially with the absence of Hitomi Nia, who had run 219.24 earlier this year in Houston. Despite her relatively modest personal best of 225 coming in, Yuka Suzuki embraced the moment and the elements to break the tape in 224 with Maui Chiyama finishing right behind her in 224.43. Now for the third place finishers, Suguru Saku and Ai Hosoda are left twiddling their thumbs in purgatory waiting to see if they make it or if someone else runs fast enough to boot them off the hot seat. I'm officially out on this system. Maybe it results in a more competitive team being sent to Paris, but a trials event that doesn't directly decide all Olympic representatives for a country or a real drag from a storytelling standpoint. LA 2028, the summer of sports. First, it was uh, about uh, the proposal of uh, the uh, Los Angeles uh, organizing uh, committee to uh, introduce uh, five uh, new sports and uh, these uh, five sports are baseball, uh, softball, flag football, lacrosse uh, sixes, squash, and cricket. These uh, proposals have been accepted as a package by the IOC executive uh, board taking into consideration that uh, these uh, proposals and these sports are fully in line with the uh, sports culture of our host in 28, with the American sports culture. They will showcase uh, iconic American sports to the world while bringing at the same time international sports uh, to uh, the United States. 
The Los Angeles Olympics will now feature a handful of new sports, baseball, softball, cricket, squash, flag football, and lacrosse. Add this to the grab bag of skateboarding, breakdancing, and the mixed gender 4x4 with esports and pickleball on the horizon, and I'm left feeling a bit like Steve Buscemi wearing a backwards hat. How do you do, fellow kids? What? But several of these sports aren't actually new to the Olympics entirely. Lacrosse was in the Olympics in 1904 and 1908, and it was played between just the United States and Canada. Baseball has come and gone a couple times, but was played as recently as in 2020 with minimal participation from the sports stars due to MLB restrictions. This will be the first time that squash will be featured and the first time anyone outside of a middle school PE class pretended to take flag football seriously. In fairness, cricket is a reasonable addition. It was last played in the Olympics in 1900, but has become a phenomenon in recent years. There's an estimated 2.5 billion cricket fans globally. The 2032 games are in Australia and with the opportunity for more people to deeply engage with Indian sports fans before the world's largest country potentially gets the 2036 games makes sense. Ratings have been steadily declining across the summer and winter games since 2012 and this is quite clearly an attempt to reach aloof 12 year olds. But the stuff Gen Z actually cares about is TikTok, sustainability, and human rights, none of which are synonymous with the Olympic movement. Might I suggest a return to the concept from the Olympics of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, including a town planning as an event? Hopefully, these additions add to the appreciation track and field receives. There's continuity and history there, and not much in the way of rules to learn in order to appreciate it. And for existing fans of the sport, new events don't detract from our interest in knowing who's the best in the world. All of the additional noise is secondary. That's what makes the World Championship special. It's just like the Olympics, but better. Meet Hoka NAZ's coach, Jack Mullaney. The Hoka NAZ elite squad has been without a head coach for several months now, and yet the performances were going so well that maybe you didn't even notice. And that was in large part thanks to interim and still assistant head coach Jenna Ryden and executive director Ben Rosario, who successfully steered the ship while temporarily without a conventional captain. And when the results of the long search were finally announced to be Jack Mullaney, I admittedly didn't know who that was. There's a tendency for brands to hire former professional athletes, which is a reasonable enough strategy given their obvious experience and expertise. But there must have been something about Mullaney that made him the best fit for the team. So I reached out to learn more. He did not share until the end of the call that he is a day one newsletter subscriber. So we're going to toss it over now to Kyle's interview with new NAZ head coach Jack Mullaney. First and foremost, congratulations on the new role. Of all the things that are probably very exciting right now, what's like the one thing that you're most excited about, whether that's, you know, team-wise or maybe even on a personal level? Because I know this is a big move for you. Um, for, for me, I think the biggest thing is I'm really just excited about being able to work with uh, a group of awesome human beings. I think... Um, at the professional level, everyone's a really good athlete, but what continues to impress me, um, as I meet with the athletes and, and even the staff and the board members associated with the team is everyone's just a, a genuine good person. And when you're around good people, that's sort of the seeds for success. And I'm just really excited to, to work with them. Um, it makes me feel like anything is possible. And as it relates to the team, I think if you zoom out and look at the history of NAZ Elite since its inception in 2014, it's been this steady growth over time. And um, we're at a pretty cool place with Chris, who this year, obviously, Alex, 
winning the U.S. marathon trials a couple of years ago. But Adrian being on the world team this year, it's at the best that it's ever been. And I'm really excited to join the team at this time. I know you've got, you've spent what, seven years in Portland and therefore you're probably heavily influenced by Rob Connor, if that's fair to say. And my, my antiquated understanding and impression of his training, high mileage, long intervals. Tell me if I'm far off on that, but like, how would you describe your coaching philosophy? You know, I guess kind of up against that philosophy that Rob has and has worked for him. First of all, what I'll say about Rob is, um, I mean, I, I owe so much of my career and, and just opportunity in this sport to him. And there's nobody that I've been around who's more authentic and true to who he is to everybody. Um, he's the same person to our athletics director as he is to me as he is to the athletes. And I, I just appreciate that about him so much. Um, but. Uh, I certainly have taken some things from him. I also uh, learned a lot from Ian Soloff, our women's coach at the University of Portland, and um, have also been a reader, big into USATF education classes, and, and also just have a network of coaches that I talk to about training. So I wouldn't say that I am directly just only about Rob Connor's training as it, as it relates to what I would do. Um, I would say that... Um, for me, and, and especially at this level, it's a lot more about tailoring the training to the individual and understanding what has worked well for them in the past, what their physiology would indicate works best for them, um, and, as well as what, you know, what if any limitations that they have. So um, it's, it's not about a system for me as much as it is about the individual. The, it, like a unique aspect of the NAZ Elite program is that you kind of have three coaches now on the roster. Like you do obviously have great resources in Jetta and Ben as well. And for a lot of the athletes, like this is their third or fourth coach in a pretty short period of time. How do you make it so it's just a really smooth transition at like the most important time of a lot of the athlete's career? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, for me, my, my top priority in, in starting gear is to build connections with the athletes and really earn their trust. And, um, you certainly don't do that by coming in and making a whole bunch of decisions. I think you come in by and talk to them and, and observe for a little bit and figure out the things that are going well, um, before you make any decisions. And to your point about having Jenna and Ben on staff, I think that's, um, that's an advantage for us because um, it's not just my expertise that we're pulling from. It's going to be a real collaborative effort. And Jenna and I are going to be very aligned moving forward in terms of coaching the athletes. And we, we want it to be if I'm at a workout or if she's at a workout, that what the athlete is getting is going to be something very similar because it's flowing from a very aligned thought process. So uh, I guess you kind of touched on this in the idea that you're coaching to the individual rather than just a specific system. And Ben kind of said in the press release, you know, that what stood out to you is that you can coach the modern athlete and then you're up to date with all the latest in training methodologies. 
I guess explain as if I'm five years old, what exactly does he mean by that? Or how is coaching today different than it would be, say, 10, 20 years ago? That's an interesting, interesting question. I, I think I, I can't necessarily say how it was 20 years ago because I, I wasn't coaching at that time and, and wasn't even an athlete at that time. I was 10 years old, but, um, <laughs> but I, I think, I think now what, what maybe is, is a trend is that, um, the athletes more than ever want to, want to take an active role in their training process and, uh, they want to have a, a collaborative approach when it comes to um, determining the training that works best for them um, rather than maybe more of an authoritarian structure that's been the case in the past and that certainly doesn't mean that that was the case for everybody um, but uh, certainly they want to they want to play a role in it as for any certain methodologies i think i would consider myself a student of the sport and so obviously threshold training is is something that's become very popular and I don't think it's something where you should just say, oh, it's because it's popular. That's what we have to do. I think it's my responsibility as a coach to do the research, to see what the merits of it are. And if there could be some benefit for a particular athlete, um, rather than simply adopting it as a religion. Um, but that would be the case for, for anything that becomes popularized or even even training methodologies that maybe were around 30, 40, 50 years ago that um, that maybe have fizzled out. I think it's my responsibility to um, to be a student of all of those and continue to, to read and research so that when an athlete comes to me, I can be pulling from a variety of different um, ideas or approaches to find one that works best for them. Very cool. So my longtime coach, Frank Agliano, was a football coach previous. Like he was not a runner. And your background is really unique in a similar way. Like you were not competing in college. And yet, you know, now you're coaching one of the best, you know, distance squads in the country. When did you think that you could make a career out of this? Like it sort of feels like it's the American dream in so many ways that you were able to prove yourself at such a young age without that standard elite athlete background that a lot of coaches today have and still find yourself in, you know, a very prestigious position. Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I think for me, I've, I've just always, um, I think something that's really important to me is I've recognized that there's a lot of through lines in the process for achieving success that, exist in a variety of different domains outside of running. Um, there's so many things that you can learn from whether it's artists or other sports or the business world. And, um, so I, I bring an experience where I was a musician growing up and I played a variety of different sports and I worked a job in the business world straight out of college for a little bit. And, uh, I feel like we can leave a lot on the table as coaches if we're only sourcing the running world for our inspiration, for our approaches, for um, for the the things that we value, for our philosophies, and and so I've just always tried to see my background as a strength rather than um, as a weakness because you know because I didn't run. 27 flat in the 10k or you know i didn't make the olympics as an athlete or shoot i didn't even run division one in college 
um, uh, I think for me, it's, it's trying to, it's been about seeing, seeing what I bring to the table as a, as a strength and really trying to magnify that. Um, as to your question about whether, when I knew that I, or believed that I could coach at this level, um, I don't know if there was ever a particular moment. I just think over time, going back to Rob Connor, I think one of the things that he told me when he first hired me was, you know, he, he said, I, there's a lot of things that this program does well at, at Portland, but there's some gaps and your job is to fill the gaps as best as you can. And so I just started with that, just trying to, trying to fill the gaps. One of those was in the weight room, um, getting our team into the weight room. So I learned as much as I could about strength training and, and tried to, um, tried to implement a regular strength training program for our team. Um, some of the things that we do from a cultural perspective, um, were, were ideas that I generated and over the course of time, um, just started to pick up more and more things. And, um, it got to a point where we had some alums graduate, um, athletes graduate from the program and they asked if I would coach them post collegiately. And once I started to do that and really was trying my hand at coaching them directly, writing their training and, and that sort of thing and having some success with it, that's when I, I think, started to believe that, that I could do this at, at this level. Very cool. I know we've never spoken before, but I feel like I'd come run for you. You won me over. Here's what else you need to know from this past week. Well, Titus Akira, who ran to a 257 to become the sixth fastest marathoner in history, was banned 10 years for doping violations. In addition to failing multiple tests, he went and tampered, which is a big no-no. The good news, the AIU did identify the complicit doctor. Elvis Kipchoge Chemboy, the coolest name on the circuit, won the Toronto Waterfront Marathon in 209.20, along with Buze Dariba in 223.11. American fans may like to know that Emily Durgan finished fifth in 226. It was her first marathon finish, and she qualified for the Olympic trials. The New York City Marathon suffered some major blows this week as a long list of dropouts were announced, including defending champion Evans Chabet, two-time champion Joffrey Kemwar, and 2022 world champion Gauditam Gebrselassie. Here's to hoping that Chabet pops up in Valencia and breaks two hours. After two decades with Nike, Kenanisa Bekele has agreed to a new sponsorship deal with the Chinese sports brand Anta. It feels like the bigger story is not that he left Nike, but that he's still signing fresh contracts at 41 before he races Valencia in December. I also appreciate the NN running team acknowledging his departure and legacy with a really cool video. If the brand sounds familiar, you might remember it from them signing Warrior star Clay Thompson back in 2022, or from the summer of 2019 when the editor of this newsletter wore a pair while being crossed over so hard by a local teenager that the play had to be stopped during a North Brooklyn pickup basketball game. The World Athlete of the Year nominations just came out, though my winners are in. For the women, it's quite obviously Faith Kipiagon because of the records and medals and all that stuff. And for the men, it's Calvin Kiptum because he ran three marathons in under 202 in 10 months, including winning two majors and setting the world record. But Kyle, Valencia was in 2022 is what you might be thinking. Well, it was in December, and after those votes were counted, so I'm counting it for 2023. Besides, if you care about concepts like years, good news, they don't let me pick the winners anyway. Thanks so much to New Balance 
for supporting this week's newsletter and filling my shoe closet. All gear reviews are in the opinions of myself and any claims on how they will impact your performance is not being signed off on by me or any legal departments. Can you do me a favor? Share this newsletter with your friends. We'll catch you next week. 